<laughs> Good morning. We're going to get started. Um, Rich and Jonathan aren't here today, so I was asked to um, update you on Cook, Eat, Learn. So um, this week, we our topic was boosting nutrition, which was um, ideas for either substituting, um, adding, eliminating or reducing ingredients in your favorite recipes to make them more nutritious. Um, and we had three different kinds of muffins with different sneaky ingredients. Um, last week, our topic was gluten-free diet um, and the distinction between a gluten-free diet for celiac disease <clears throat> versus the fad of um, a weight loss diet. So our trivia question was name two grains that did not contain gluten and picked at random from our two entries <laughs> was Adam Strauss, who said rice and quinoa. And um, he gets a bag of quinoa. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, hi, I'm uh, Brad Eric from uh, Hemonk, and I get to introduce uh, Mary Chamberlain, who's one of our faculty members, uh, to speak today. Uh, Mary uh, is an um, East Coaster, having been born in Rochester and did her undergraduate work at Cornell. Uh, she's uh, been on our faculty um, after having done her fellowship here uh, and just got back from uh, a uh, sabbatical, what would we call it? Not a sabbatical. Uh, academic. academic leave um, with the Global Health Initiative of Dartmouth in Rwanda, uh, which uh, maybe we'll have a picture or two in here. Um, uh, but as you, as from her... Uh, little blurb that was sent out here before. She's been to Africa before doing work uh, in Zimbabwe uh, bef uh, with the um, Overseas Development Network um, and uh, then uh, did a research uh, fellowship with William. I don't see William here right now. William Rigby and then joined our fellowship uh, in Hemonk. Uh, after finishing raising her three lovely daughters, she came back to uh, Dartmouth working part-time with uh, the Keene uh, um, group and then moving up north here to be on our full-time faculty. And one of, the, one of Mary's interests aside from breast cancer and the role of obesity is the evolving role of, of genomic testing of tumors, uh, so-called molecular profiling to uh, tailor and identify novel therapeutic uh, opportunities for, for uh, patients. And she's going to talk to us about, about that experience here at Dartmouth. Actually, I think I'll just use this one. Thank you all for coming this morning. It's a beautiful spring day. And thank you, Dr. Eric, for that introduction. So I, um, I'm going to give you some background on the, um, the experience we've had here developing a molecular tumor board. And I will um, essentially provide an introduction and background to the molecular tumor board. I will present some data that we've collected over the last year. I will discuss national trials related to targeted therapies, the ongoing challenges we have in the, with the program, future directions and collaborations, and a few um, words on global implications. I have no financial disclosures to report. 
And the learning objectives are to understand the rationale and necessity behind the development of the new molecular tumor board at Dartmouth, to recognize changes in treatment paradigms for advanced cancer, and to begin to reflect about the impact and the potential of those changes on patients, institutions, and global cancer care. So our team is composed of um, a group of molecular pathologists, researchers, basic scientists, and geneticists. Laura Tafe is a, a major part of the team in her role as a molecular pathologist. Todd Miller and Ivan Gorloff do a lot of the interpretations for our uh, tumor board presentations. Greg Sangalis is director of molecular pathology here. Chris Amos is director of the Department of Genomic Medicine. Konstantin Dragnev, director of clinical research. And I'm a clinical oncologist and ended up being the director of the molecular tumor board. So why do we have a molecular tumor board? How did I get here? Um, essentially, it started with conversations about some of the dramatic responses that we've seen in oncology care and with targeted therapies and how do, we, how do we broaden their use? How do we create more dramatic responses in a, in a challenging field? And when some drugs work really well, of course, we want to, we want to find more people that, that can benefit from them. So, for example, some of the targeted therapies that have evolved over the last 10 to 20 years have had very dramatic responses. So in chronic my myelogenous leukemia, the development of a drug called imatinib has created a essentially fatal disease to a, to a chronic, very livable uh, disease that has spread worldwide. Imatinib is, it was available in Rwanda. It's available in Honduras. It's, it's widely um, accessed now. Melanoma has seen um, some big advances in targeted therapies for metastatic disease using BRAF inhibitors and MEK inhibitor combinations. Lung cancer was one of the one of the first also that used targeted therapies with EGFR inhibitors, ALK inhibitors, BRAF inhibitors, and MEK inhibitors. And breast cancer probably has the longest history of targeted therapies with anti-estrogen and HER2 targeted therapies. So dramatic response looks like this, where you have on the top is somebody with metastatic melanoma. They have a liver that is, has multiple hypodensities um, throughout and an enlarged liver, very hypermetabolic on PET scan, and again, extremely um, dominant in this person's PET scan. So that's at baseline, two weeks after a targeted therapy with a BRAF inhibitor, the liver still has problems, but you can see that the me metabolic activity has essentially gone to zero. So that's the kind of dramatic response we're talking about that we're aiming for as much as possible. But cancer is a constantly evolving process. It's complex and heterogeneous within patients, within cancer types, and with individual cells within the same tumor, as well as the same tumor cell at different stages of development. So mutations are constantly happening. And as someone is treated, they accumulate more and more mutations. And the idea behind multiple biopsies is to find additional mutations along the way of metastasis that may then open up new targeted therapy options. So to use cancer genetics to guide therapy, um, the, the human genome is, is huge. It contains 30,000 genes. 
but only a limited number of genes, about 200, are implicated as driver genes involved in cancer progression. Mutations and aberrant expression, which is gain or loss of driver genes, is underlying the mechanism of metastasis. Driver genes may offer therapeutic targets that are often more tumor-specific than conventional cancer targets. Conventional cancer drugs tend to go at every dividing cell, targeting DNA replication or microtubule, um, separation during mitosis. Targeted therapies are trying to do it more targeted. So therefore, identification of driver genes in a given patient's tumor may reveal tumor-specific targets with fewer side effects, ideally. The ultimate goal will be to use molecular characterization to stratify patients before they get their treatment in terms of who's going to respond to what. And on the top, you have the strong responders, in the middle, moderate responders, combination therapy, and non-responders. So can we, using molecular characterization, decide who's going to go into what group before we give them drugs that are going to have side effects? So fortunately for us, um, as we started looking into all this, we realized that our excellent molecular pathology department was way ahead of us, and they've already, they were already developing a clinical genomics and advanced technologies department, and a, have devised a hotspot panel of 50 cancer-related genes. So I'm going to walk you through, from my clinician's perspective, what this looks like and and what is the mechanism behind these tests. So first, the sequencing. The first targeted genes, they didn't, the uh, bolding didn't show up too well, but the first three that we did routinely were EGFR, BRAF, and KRAS over here. So those three genes were the ones that popped up first in terms of having clinical relevance to oncologists treating melanoma and lung cancer and colon cancer. But what our molecular pathology department realized as the technology was advancing is that they couldn't expand that and do 50 genes at, at the same price of three. So they did their research and figured out what were the most likely genes of interest for clinical use. The traditional way to, to uh, sequence a tumor was through something called Sanger sequencing, which separates the DNA into a panel of nucleotides. What this technology now is doing is called next generation sequencing, where it's creating a huge, much, much larger panel of nucleotides. And that's where the confusion comes in. It's a lot of data. And the first step is to take those fragments. So it, it creates fragments from DNA and RNA into fragments of 300 to 600 base pairs adds adapters and barcodes, puts that through PCR, and then creates a library of information. And the reason next-generation sequencing is so important is that it has the power to sequence the same fragment hundreds to thousands of times. It can sequence multiple fragments from many genes at the same time and multiple patient DNA samples at the same time. And how does it do that? So there's a machine called the ion torrent, which is a solid state pH reader converting chemical data to digital. It's semiconductor based technology using simple sequencing chemistry, including natural nucleotides, 
no enzymatic cascade, no fluorescence, no chemiluminescence, no optics, and no light. So the technology is in the chip, and the chip is the machine. And within that chip, there are micro-machined wells containing DNA templates. Beneath that, there's an ion-sensitive layer. This isn't working anymore. And then a proprietary ion sensor below that. The ion personal genome machine sequencer then sequentially floods the chip with one nucleotide after another. And if a nucleotide is picked up by the DNA in the template, a hydrogen ion is released, and that creates a voltage change. When it's not picked up, no voltage change will be recorded, no ion is released. And if multiple identical bases are next to each other, then the voltage is doubled. So it's creating an electrical signal from the, from the molecular information. And through that, it creates mounds and mounds of data for uh, pathologists and clinicians to work through. And they're currently, the pathology department here is celebrating their thousandth patient tumor sequenced. And you can see the, how that's divided up by tumor type, with non-small cell lung cancer being the most frequently sequenced tumor, colon cancer next, glioma, melanoma, cancer of unknown primary, breast, and other, including uterus, sarcoma, and pancreas. And another way to look at that is through percentages. So 40% are lung cancer, 30% colon, 12% glioma, 9% melanoma. And these are based on, because lung and colon and glioma and melanoma are all done routinely, that's why their numbers are so high. The others are the ones that we're aiming to increase as we advance in terms of targeted therapies. So within a certain tumor type, there are certain genes that are being more commonly identified. And within non-small cell lung cancer and with colon cancer, about 50% are considered actionable, where there are drugs available or clinical trials being done to target those mutations. And the most common in non-small cell are KRAS and EGFR. And in colon, KRAS and BRAF are very common and actionable. So 50 genes instead of three means a lot more information, and often without a lot of strong clinical data to guide recommendations. And that's what we as oncologists are confronting. So what do we do? <laughs> we scream and yell. <laughs> so too many variables for our little town. So initially, the, our plan, Todd Miller and I, was to write a observational protocol that would track the uh, mutational analysis, and then use targeted therapies in one group and conventional therapy in another and compare. Do the, do, does the concept of targeted therapy improve outcomes? But as we worked through the challenges of that, any, any histology means there's a lot of variables and a lot of drugs, and how do you compare apples and oranges? And in an institution of our size, in a region of our size, we just don't have enough numbers to randomize and create a high-quality endpoint. And who would supply the drug if you're recommending use off the FDA uh, intended use? 
And while we were struggling with these, these protocol review committees and issues, the world and the country was working on the same thing. And so Novartis, NCI, and a cooperative group called, called SWAG have all developed international trials trying to determine the same thing. So essentially, sequencing is happening and clinicians need help, and that's where the Molecular Tumor Board comes in. So even if we're participating in national clinical trials, we still need to know which one is the most appropriate one to recommend to a patient. How do we know what a given mutation means? How do we know what to recommend? Who's going to pay for the drug? Who's going to manage unexpected findings in genetic profiles? And will it work? How do you define whether it's working? Is it stable disease? Certainly, complete responses are what we're going for, but they're rare. So is there a benefit somewhere in between? So we started the tumor board about a year and a half ago. So November 2013 was our first meeting. We currently have 84 members, and it's growing. It's a nice combination of pathologists, <coughs> clinical hematologists and oncologists, basic scientists, clinical research assistants, research nurses, genetic counselors, pharmacists, and ethicists. Our mission is to educate and inform clinicians on genetic alterations that indicate sensitivity or resistance to targeted therapies and or clinical trials, to improve referrals to phase one and two trials and other targeted therapy trials, and to create a venue for academic collaboration between basic scientists, pathologists, and clinicians. <clears throat> so it's a multidisciplinary design. We have monthly meetings with um, a combination of pathologists, oncologists, geneticists, and basic scientists. And we discuss the history, pathology, molecular, molecular studies, and treatments for each patient. And this just shows how the, the pathway of the tumor genetic profiling is ordered either by the clinician or initiated as reflex testing in pathology. The DNA is extracted and sequenced. The genetic profile is determined, and it goes in the 50 gene panel at least goes into the medical record under molecular pathology. The treating physician will ask that the case be presented if there are clinical dilemmas about what the mutations mean, and there usually are. And then we make our best recommendations. So over the course of the year, whoops. Um, Laura Tafe and others have come up with a manuscript that is currently um, in process of being published, outlining our um, experience. And this shows the percentage of different cases that have been presented over the first year, with 24% lung, 22% colon, 16% breast, 8% brain, 5% sarcoma, 10% skin, and 13% other. So to give you an example of what, what a case presentation would look like, this is a, um, a woman with initially locally advanced breast cancer that was ER negative, HER2 positive. She was treated with chemotherapy before surgery using a HER2 targeted regimen, docetaxel, carboplatin, trastuzumab, and pertuzumab, but unfortunately progressed clinically with the tumor growing despite chemotherapy. So she was switched to the next standard chemotherapy for breast cancer, adriamycin and cyclophosphamide, 
continued to progress with the tumor growing and beginning to ulcerate. She proceeded to surgery, had a salvage mastectomy, a large amount of unresectable tissue once the surgeon was in there. So post-op RT, again, salvage radiation was recommended to help give her some local control, but she continued to decline, unfortunately, and eventually developed a malignant pleural effusion and respiratory failure that we felt was all driven by this malignancy. So the idea was to find, obviously, standard chemotherapy wasn't stopping it, so could we find a target? And we did a molecular profile of the mastectomy tissue, and this identified a FLT3 mutation, which is, has known drugs available, but they're for AML. So the, there are drugs, divitinib and serafinib, that have anti-FLT3 activity. But the question was, what is the data using those drugs on breast cancer with, in a person with a FLT3 mutation? And what do we have to guide us? Does it make any sense to try this on this poor patient? What we know about FLT3 is it encodes a receptor tyrosine kinase that regulates hematopoiesis. It's activated by binding of the FLT3 ligand to the extracellular domain. The activated receptor subsequently phosphorylates and activates pathways downstream involved in apoptosis, proliferation, and differentiation of hematopoietic cells in bone marrow. Those mutations are what results in constitutive activation and causing AML and ALL. But what is the etiology in breast cancer? <clears throat> What we know, if you start analyzing all the databases, and this is what Todd and Ivan will do every month for the Molecular Tumor Board, first you look and see what genetic alterations exist in FLT3, and the top graph, the red bars, indicates amplification, the blue bar indicates homozygous deletion, and the green are mutations. So those are known um, genetic alterations that have been recorded in the FLT3 gene. The bottom graph shows all of the various cancers that have these mutations that have been reported. And you can see the, the far left here, the top, the, the large green bars indicate that AML and ALL predominantly have mutations. The other cancers where the blue bars are show that they have predominantly homozygous deletions. Breast cancer is way down there showing a mixture of the genetic alterations and very rare. So we didn't, we didn't have a lot to go by. We know that that particular mutation at the S684 location has not been previously reported, but many other seemingly random mutations have been found in FLT3. Every one of those green balls or green circles are random mutations that have been recorded in the literature. But there was no specific literature on this particular mutation. So what about the drugs? How, do, how active are they against this mutation? Dovitinib has a lot of activity. FLT3 is the, the most active target. Serafinib, less so, where FLT3 is down in the middle in terms of its level of activity against that mutation. There is some data on serafinib in breast cancer, retrospective pooled analysis of randomized control trials. And also with serafinib, divitinib, there is some data, but not no retrospective randomized 
I mean, no prospective randomized trials, which we often uh, rely on. So the recommendation of that particular uh, case was to confirm ER negative HER2 status in recurrent tumor or pleural effusion because she, the original mutation status was done on the mastectomy specimen she had since progressed. Could there be a change that would give us more options? So the first recommendation was to repeat the testing on a different tissue specimen. The second was to broaden the look um, to add copy number analysis and foundation medicine sequencing, which is a panel of 400 genes, I think, of recurrent tumor or pleural effusion to expand the search for additional targets. And it wasn't felt that targeting FLT3 would have much benefit, given that it was an, it recorded as neutral, it's very rare, it's a hematopoietic gene, it most likely wasn't going to influence um, this patient's outcome. However, there was data on these particular drugs that, and that did demonstrate anti-breast tumor effects. It just wouldn't be a genetically directed treatment. So given the, the severity of her condition, uh, she was awake and alert enough to have a, a careful discussion about the options. We tried to access Divitinib via compassionate use that some pharmaceutical companies will do, and they were very responsive. I think this was the week before Christmas, so it was difficult getting people on the phone, but they tried, and they said it would take several weeks to get approval to access the drug. This woman was critically ill. We thought about serafinib, which is available. It's FDA approved for renal cell. You can write a prescription pretty easily. And surprisingly, her insurance company did approve it, given uh, the information that I provided that it was targeting a, potentially targeting or having an effect on a, a, a mutation of unknown significance. Uh, unfortunately, the patient deteriorated and the, and the family decided to withdraw support before she could try the drug. But I think the, the learning experience was informative and the fact that we were able to get approval for off-label use was very interesting. Another case was a young man with anaplastic ependymoma whose molecular profiling revealed MSH2 loss and a PTPN11 mutation. And through additional background research, MSH2 loss suggested sensitivity to folate antimetabolite, such as methotrexate. This patient had already had three or four lines of chemotherapy, and the uh, oncologist decided to use to go by the recommendations of the tumor board and to give this patient high-dose IV methotrexate as an inpatient. He did achieve stable disease for six weeks, which, which was the most stable his disease had been for the last three years. After progression on that, the mutation at, uh, of PTPN11 was analyzed or readdressed, and it is known to activate the RASMAP-ERK kinase pathway as well as other pathways of cell proliferation. And in the literature, it was reported that activating mutations of PTPN11 may predict, predict sensitivity to a MEK inhibitor, which is also a drug that is available. Trimetinib is a MEK inhibitor that's FDA approved for melanoma. And again, it was prescribed and rejected by the insurance company, appealed by the oncologist, and approved. The patient took it and again, experienced stable disease for another 
several months after three years of slow progression. To review some of the pathways, this is just a, a visual of the proliferation pathways in the particular case where the PTPN11 indicated activation of RAS and PIK3CA. These are cytosolic pathways leading to a long cascade of communication to, with ultimately causing cell proliferation and cell growth. So when we're talking about targeted therapies affecting pathways, they're usually going after one of these steps, and this is just one pathway in a very complex um, system. So this outlines the mutations that have been found among the cases that were presented in TuberBoard over the last year. With TP53 being the most common, that is not targetable. There are some clinical trials uh, being developed to try to create targets for that, but currently it is not considered an actionable mutation. PIK3CA is very common in many cancers, so each of these colored bars indicate different types of cancers. So blue is lung, orange is colorectal, yellow is breast and skin. That does have, uh, there have been drugs developed, which we'll talk about in a minute, that target that, but it is still unknown whether targeting PIK3CA is a valid um, approach. MET inhibitors are available, as well as BRAF inhibitors. So about half of these have targets. So this shows trying to, trying to identify, um, does this concept work? And these are four graphs of different patients, some of whom I've mentioned already. So in a melanoma patient, there always are star <laughs> examples. This particular patient on the left um, has metastatic melanoma, and the, the y-axis is time to change in treatment. So given that we did not have a prospective study to, to work with, we had to define an endpoint, and the, the only clinical assessment of progression that you can do without having very firm time points in terms of CAT scans and resist criteria and progressive disease is when does the clinician decide to change drug. So that's what we used as our um, measure of benefit to a, a given therapy. So in a person with metastatic melanoma, they started with ipilimumab. They had two months with, without uh, before they needed to change drug. They went on a clinical trial using a combination of MEK and BRAF inhibitors and had excellent stable disease for 10 months and counting. So the arrow indicates that they are still on that combination. So this is the ideal example of what targeted therapy can do. In metastatic breast cancer, um, this patient had a long disease-free interval after her initial diagnosis developed metastatic disease, had various responses to various therapies, and finally it, deter was, it was decided that she should go on um, endocrine therapy plus an mTOR inhibitor because she had a PIK3CA mutation. And even though this is a standard combination that's FDA approved, it has a lot of toxicity, so the clinician wasn't, was hesitant given all of the drugs that she'd had. But with the information of the PIK3CA mutation, it gave further evidence that this combination could have a more significant benefit than the average patient. So she did go on the combination, tolerated it well, and has had 
fairly stable disease. And this is the third one is the anaplastic ependymoma that we discussed. And usually the, the, meth, the, um, the trend is that every time you change drugs in metastatic disease, the time to progression is shorter. So in that third graph, you would expect that after the third and fourth treatment where the bars are, are con consecutively getting shorter, that the next one is going to be even shorter. But it actually wasn't. It kind of bounced back up and gave him a longer period of stable disease. And similarly, in the last one, a patient with lung cancer, you had a disease-free interval for a while, tried chemotherapy, which is the one right before the red bar, progressed right through standard chemotherapy, went on a targeted trial, and had stable disease. So since we started doing the molecular tumor board, we've presented over 50 cases. There have been five changes in clinical management, meaning actual drugs given to the patient. I think more often what happens is the, the recommendations give the clinicians more information to talk to the patient about their options. And so even if it doesn't result in a drug getting to the patient, it helps them make a decision. You know, do you want to go to a clinical trial in Boston or do you want to stay home? That kind of thing. <laughs> Three referrals for genetic counseling and germline testing. 36% were referred to clinical trials. A small number have gone on clinical trials. We obtained two out of two approvals for off-label drug use. Um, one was actually treated off-label with, with relatively good benefit. And three, uh, and soon to be four, clinical trial enrollments. So what's happening around the country? There are molecular tumor boards in many, many other institutions. Um, we're pretty much on par with most of the, the bigger um, sites. So UC San Diego formed a molecular tumor board in December 2012. MD Anderson, Vanderbilt, and Yale all have them. We were talking with some folks from Mayo last week. They meet weekly, but their format is very similar to ours, although they don't do any of their own sequencing. And that's true for a lot of places. So I think we're very lucky to have a molecular pathology department that can do in-house sequencing and engage us in, our, in these discussions. Last December, I was at the um, annual conference on breast cancer in San Antonio. There were only two posters in the poster sessions having to do with molecular tumor boards or molecular profiling. One institution does the profiling without the discussion, so they leave it up to the clinicians to figure out what to make of it. <laughs> and another institution does has the molecular tumor board, but it isn't comfortable making off-label drug recommendations, which I thought was interesting, too. Most places use larger commercial plant panels, but ultimately, so far, the the outcomes and the clinical effects are similar. 50 genes versus 200 doesn't necessarily have that much of an impact on patient management. So does targeted therapy work? Um, prospective trials have been done trying to find reasonable endpoints to answer this question. There is a study on metastatic breast cancer that improved time to progression on targeted therapy compared to time to progression on last standard therapy. And the battle trial has gotten a, lot, a fair amount of attention because it improved clinical benefit defined as 
complete response, partial response, and stable disease in metastatic lung cancer. And that's a 16-week clinical benefit. So you, is that significant? It's a tough call to make. In, in France, there was a study that identified targets in 400 patients with metastatic breast cancer. 70% were successfully biopsied. 46% had a target identified, so similar to our yields in terms of actionable targets. Only 13% received drug. And of those who received drug, 30% had a partial response or stable disease. So given that not that many received drug, but of those who did, 30% had partial response stable disease, that is pretty significant in a heavily pretreated, difficult patient population. So the issue is, how do you increase the percent who get drug? So will larger studies help? Larger studies allow you to form um, collaborations with pharmaceutical companies who may provide the drug so you don't have to go begging to the insurance companies to cover it. The right endpoint is still under evaluation. And larger studies are being done to try to answer these questions. For example, the Signature Clinical Trial Program is run by Novartis. They have an interesting design in that the tissue sample is ordered by the treating physician. The mutation has to be identified first before they will even give us the protocol. So that means you've got to somehow identify your patients before they've progressed on their current drug, get the protocol and get it open as soon as possible by the time they need the drug. So that's been extremely challenging. And for various reasons, the design has been difficult for us to enroll to. But the primary objective, it's not randomized. So once you find a mutation, they will give you the drug and then the patient gets followed for progression. And the primary objective is clinical benefit rate. Secondary objective, overall response, progression-free survival, overall survival with exploratory objectives. So they, they have 10 different drugs. They've had about eight of them opened and closed already, and two are in the works. And the drugs are single agent and specifically targeting various mutations. So the tier one were, were PI3 kinase inhibitors, FGR inhibitors, MEK inhibitors, RAF inhibitors, and smoothen inhibitors. And tier two, which is mostly open at this point, and has different targets, but very similar design. So our experience here was that we were able to identify a patient with a PIK3CA inhibitor and get the trial open. It took about three months. So by that time, the patient had gone on another clinical trial and had an excellent response and hasn't needed to go on this trial. They have multiple cohorts where once a specific drug or disease type has enrolled, they will close the cohort. So as soon as we identified other people, they had already closed the cohort and we were behind the ball in terms of getting people in the slots while they were open. So it was very... Um, very difficult. We tried again with a tyrosine kinase multi-targeted inhibitor with multiple um, genetic alterations allowed in the eligibility. We identified two patients. The one who we used to open the trial progressed to hospice fairly quickly. 
the second one with the appropriate mutation went on first-line therapy and needed to show progression on first-line before she could be eligible. And by the time she progressed, the cohort was closed and we weren't able to get her on study. But it was opened more quickly. It took 10 weeks instead of three months. Signature programs around the country have uh, 242 sites. And interestingly, if you look on the web to see what sites are using these trials, they're mostly community or smaller uh, cancer centers. So less bureaucracy. They can call up, get a protocol, open it you know, within a much shorter period of time. But you also have to wonder what the quality of data is going to be. And that's to be determined. So there have been 242 sites around the country, 500 patients consented, 300 dosed, 200 discontinued, mostly due to progression. And new studies are continuously coming up, and we actually have somebody enrolled or soon to be enrolled on a targeted, targeted signature trial in the near future. So overall, our experience with signature was it was a very challenging design to work with, but we successfully streamlined the protocol review and IRB process to open trials quickly. And the third trial we opened opened in six weeks compared to three months. It remains to be seen whether this design is going to reach even its own endpoints, much less be useful clinically. There's an ASCO presentation this week um, on the results of that first trial we discussed, the PIK3CA inhibitor. Another attempt at a large study is through um, the Southwest Oncology Group, or SWOG, through collaboration with multiple cooperative groups. And this is a phase two slash three biomarker-driven master protocol for second-line therapy of squamous cell lung cancer. So squamous cell is, is challenging. It, adenocarcinoma of the lung has multiple targets. They've had good responses. Squamous cell, the targets have been elusive. So they're attempting through a similar design, through molecular profiling, analysis pipeline, a master protocol. If a mutation is identified, they then go down into these three bars, three boxes showing the mutation and the drug. Then they get randomized within those groups to targeted versus conventional therapy. So you're quickly winnowing down. This is the schema. So you can see why you need huge numbers of people to come up with anything meaningful out of these studies. So you've got a patient, they get analyzed. If they have a biomarker, they get put in a category with the appropriate biomarker and then randomized. If they don't have a target, then they get randomized again to a different type of non-targeted immunotherapy. And we haven't yet been able to enroll anybody here because the conventional chemotherapy is docetaxel. They can't have any prior docetaxel, and that's a very common and effective first-line therapy. So again, it's training and education, breaking old habits. How do we break out of our patterns to make these trials work? And the NCI is doing a similar um, attempt, molecular analysis for therapy choice. Again, any histology, advanced cancer, gets analyzed. A mutation is identified. It's not randomized. They get the study agent when they go on study, and then they get followed for progressive disease. Interestingly, once they progress, then they will go back 
and if a, a if a second target has been identified, they'll go back into the study on a different arm. There are multiple sub-studies. They're using the, same, the um, similar assays, so the ion torrent, with a panel of 200 to 300 actionable genes. And the drugs are being provided by multiple companies, so it's a huge, huge um, program. There are many, many sub-studies, each with their own drug. So inhibiting ERB-B1 and 2, PI3K-alpha, MEK and NF1 mutations, FGFR fusions, FGFR amplifications, CKIT mutations, and DDR2 mutations. And we've actually been selected to be involved in that last sub-study targeting DDR2 mutations. I'm the, the clinical PI for that sub-study, working with Derek Haslam and Catherine Foote at different institutions to design the protocol that will target DDR2, which is a discoidin domain receptor 2, tyrosine kinase that binds fibrillar collagen and has a role in cell adhesion, proliferation, invasion, and metastasis. There is a drug already known that, that targets that mutation as well as others. It's a disatinib. It's a reversible inhibitor of BCR, ABL, SARC, CKIT, DDR2, et cetera. And it is approved for use in, in CML and Philadelphia chromosome positive ALL. Objective responses have been seen in non-small cell patients who have the mutation. So the hope is if we identify other cancers with that mutation, it will work as well. So match lessons so far. Uh, these are very well-oiled machines. It's been really interesting to be a part of it. The sub-protocol is in its final steps of review, and we should have it open sometime this year. And I've learned firsthand that you can have conference calls and internet and cell phone service sometimes easier in Rwanda than here <laughs> to keep the, keep the momentum going. So challenges, um, targeted therapy and molecular tumor board challenges have a lot to do with the fact that there are several moving targets. The quality of tissue we haven't really talked about, but there's a, a good portion of times when the biopsy gets to pathology and it's either been exhausted because of standard processing or there wasn't enough um, high quality tumor tissue to analyze to do the molecular profiling and trying to get more tissue from your patients can be hard when they feel like pincushions already. The depth of sequencing is changing rapidly. There's a lot of work being done. Um, our pathologists here might be able to comment on that later um, to expand the um, depth of sequencing. Clinician participation is a challenge. It's, it's, it's about communication, it's raising awareness of the need for the profile, need for the analysis, and the idea behind the clinical trials. Access to trials and drugs, as we've talked about, and constantly changing reimbursements. So the profiling itself, we're having trouble getting paid for, not to mention um, some of the larger panels that get sent out. Some patients end up with very large bills. How do we decide whether it's working? and who makes the call, whether the cost is worth the benefit. We've had several successes. Uh, we have a strong basic science, clinical research, and molecular and translational program leading the country as we all wade through these issues. We've had increased communication between different clinical oncology groups and traditional tumor boards 
as the histologic walls break down and we have to start thinking about cancer as a mutation process, not a histology. And meanwhile, the list of exceptional responders is growing as patients get targeted therapies and do better. And the, and the NIH is actually starting a database where they want all exceptional responders to report in and provide data. So our goals for the future, uh, we are working with pathology to recommend molecular profiling in certain cases to clinicians. We're sending regular reminders to clinicians to order the profiles, to come to tumor board, to think about the clinical trials that they could be eligible for. We are trying to increase routine testing of some of the rarer cancers, but reimbursement is, is a constant problem. And we're trying to increase aware awareness regionally. Going, I'm going to UVM in September to give grand rounds on this, and Todd Miller and I are going about the region to discuss these issues with the um, outreach sites. So in terms of where it's going scientifically, um, DNA sequencing that we're currently doing works very well to find mutations, small insertions and deletions. Copy number changes is feasible, is sometimes additionally useful, um, but costs more. Gene fusions is probably the next best thing or next big thing in cancer genomics. But to identify those, you have to know that they're there first or you have to know what you're looking for. So you need the data first, similar to um, ALK rearrangements or, or other genetic changes that you know are important. Then you can design the probes and look for them and find them relatively inexpensively. So future directions for clinical trials include neoadjuvant studies where you can try targeted therapies in a person before conventional therapy to, to assess response. So if you have a molecular profile of a biopsy, you know that they're going to surgery, you can do a couple of months on targeted therapy and then get repeat tissue to see what's happened in the process without compromising their outcome. So that's a big area of investigator-initiated studies. Residual disease after neoadjuvant therapy, so the best outcomes occur when you have a complete response to neoadjuvant therapy. There's a good portion of people who don't have that. They get to surgery and there's residual cancer, but we don't know what to do with them afterwards. So is there a role for targeted therapy to play as an adjuvant therapy to prevent recurrence? These are all studies that require more people to come up with the proper endpoints. So we are trying to do collaborations with UVM, UMass, Yale, Mayo, even Rwanda. <clears throat> So last but not least, is there a role for targeted therapy worldwide? Globally, cancer is quickly rising. The, the number of cancers or percentage of cancers in developing countries is rising. So in the 70s, it was about 15%. 2008, 56% of all cancers in the world were coming out of resource-poor, resource-limited countries. And that's projected to increase to 70% by 2030. So that's an overwhelming tidal wave. Resources are scarce. In Rwanda, for example, there's a population of 12 million. Life expectancy has improved from the age of 48 15 years ago to 63 in 2011. And when people live into their 60s, they're going to have more cancers. HIV care is free and accessible, so they have the infrastructure. It's a matter of making it work for cancer care, too. And there's a major 
um, shortage of, of caregivers. So 0.84 per thousand people. The, the WHO goal worldwide is 2.3. Chemotherapy is challenging. There's very poor access to drugs, poor IV access. So wouldn't that be an opportunity for targeted therapy? They're mostly oral. If you identify the targets, then you can you know what to look for. You can create probes for these resource-poor countries to, um, to use. So these are some of the docs that I work with. A lot of you know Dr. Brackett. He does actually round and not just drink tea. <laughs> we saw many gastric tumors in the endoscopy suite, and that was an area of a lot of interest in the clinicians there. And interestingly, there's a, a machine called Gene Expert that is was that came up on every case that we rounded on, predominantly because it focused on focuses on infectious diseases. But I found out that it can also identify BCR able message RNA transcripts when it's properly designed. That that is not available in the U.S., but could be an option for resource poor countries. And if we were to identify strong targets in other, um, with other genetic alterations, you could use the same technology to look for those mutations and provide access to drugs. So we did many presentations on targeted therapies. There was a lot of interest, and the, most of the interest was on gastric tumors. Partners in Health has created the model of HIV care going door to door, and similar things could be done with oncology. It's the land of a thousand hills and 12 million challenges, and lots of lions. <laughs> In summary, so targeted therapies are not a cure, but a step toward managing advanced cancer as a chronic disease. The list of long-term responders is growing. Cancer is quickly becoming a mutational diagnosis rather than histological, and FDA drug approvals will hopefully soon catch up with this concept. Thanks very much to the entire Molecular Pathology Department and Translational Research Program, many of whom are in the audience today, uh, Laura Tafe and Jason Peterson, Francine Diabru, Samantha Allen, Leanne Cook, the list goes on. And many other thanks to my colleagues at Norris Cotton Cancer Center. Proudy on, thank you.
Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a that's a great question, and I think it may be where we're headed. I think this is these trials are trying to do it the right way <laughs> with um, randomization and comparison and control and. It, we don't know if we're going to be, be able to successfully prove it that way or not. And in the meantime, we're, we're still doing it as an N of one. As, as clinicians, we're making our best judgment and getting insurance companies to cooperate. And if it works, it works. And it's not very scientific, but it's the reality. Yeah. You mentioned that uh, some, some of the cancers are tested routinely. Uh, can you use these profiles to decide what won't work? Almost everything you presented was looking for something that would work. Right. So. Yes, yeah, so some of the mutation or the genetic alterations will indicate resistance, and we didn't talk about that very much, but that's also one of the ways that the, the profiling can affect patient management. KRAS, for example, indicates resistance to drugs for lung and colon cancer. Laura, I don't know if you want to comment any more on that. I would agree. Um, there's a higher mutation as well that Thank you very much.